This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 29, October 14, 1982. Some time back, I did deal with the subject of witchcraft in the Middle Ages, and the fact that Geoffrey Burton Russell, in his classic study of the subject, published by the Cornell University Press, pointed out that the medieval witch was involved in human sacrifices, in cannibalism, and a great many other evils, so that there was good reason for the hostility to witches. The hostility to witches was grounded on the fact that they were enemies of mankind, that they were behind every kind of evil practice. Of course, as uh, Burton pointed out, you may recall, we have come to believe that the witches were harmless cranks with some oddball ideas, but not really a problem. Well, uh, Russell's book made clear why it was a serious matter. Now I want to touch on the matter briefly because, first of all, the Bible says emphatically in the Law of Moses, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. To understand what that means, we have to know what the word witch meant when God spoke through Moses. It meant simply poisoner. A witch was a poisoner. And in the ancient world, poisoning was a very popular means of disposing of unwanted people. They did not have the means of modern autopsy, which are still far from infallible. And as a result, in the Greco-Roman world and outside the Greco-Roman world, the poisoner had a very popular role. He could enable you to dispose of an unwanted husband or wife or enemy or anyone, and it would not appear to be murder. Now, in every age of cultural decay or of hostilities, the poisoner has had a tremendous function. It is interesting that in our day we are seeing the return of that kind of thing. And just as the witches represented a hostility against all mankind, a militant hostility, so, too, you're seeing it now, for example, in the Tylenol case. A totally anonymous type of killing, but one representing an insane, hidden hostility against the human race. A desire to kill, and to kill anonymously. Now, some people have said that the biblical meaning was not known to the Middle Ages, and they were just killing off harmless peoples, uh, women who were a little bit dotty, but were not a problem. Well, I'd like to uh, call the attention of those people to a medieval document. In fact, it goes back to uh, very early in that era. The laws of the Alamans, that is, the Alamans being the Germanic peoples, 
the laws of the Alamans and Bavarians. And we find that in their code, uh, section 13 reads, if a woman calls another woman a witch or a poisoner, whether it is said in a dispute in the presence of the accused or in one's absence, let her pay twelve solidi. In other words, you see very clearly there that witch and poisoner are synonymous. So that we need to recognize that people were not primitive in the Middle Ages, nor were they stupid and vicious, but that they, in fearing witches, were fearing some very evil and dangerous peoples. Then to go briefly to another subject, uh, this is a word with John Lofton. I'm sorry you're not here to ask more questions, John, but this is in continuation of a discussion that we had at Colorado Springs on a predestination. On the flight home, Dorothy was reading the newly published uh, Notes of a Revolutionary by Andre Amalric, published in 1982 by Knopf in New York. Amalric describes the life of the Zeks, the prisoners in the Gulag. And he says, and I quote, I do not, however, mean to say that the general attitude of the people towards the regime as distinguished from the individuals in power is negative. The attitude of many people could be called one of passive acceptance. I do not even mean that love of the people for the regime that propaganda drums into one's ears is purely fictive. If you are being raped daily, you will either hate the rapist or come to love him. And the love of the people is of that kind, since hating demands a greater effort. When I hear someone say that the Soviet people can simply shed the past 60 years and go back to the values of pre-revolutionary Russia, or that they can adopt Western values, I am skeptical. If we want to compare the experience of the Soviet people with that of a man who has been incarcerated, we can say that the Zek will, of course, agree that he himself lived better when he was on the outside than he did later behind bars, and that a person who lived on the outside while he himself was doing hard labor in a camp could get more out of life than himself. But he will not agree that his life behind bars was in vain and that he got nothing out of it. He feels that he learns something significant through suffering. And when the Zek, with a feeling of superiority vis-a-vis -vis the person who has never been in prison, remarks, he has not gone through what I went through, he is saying something that might well be echoed by the people as a whole, who will never dismiss the half-century since the revolution as a waste of time. Unquote. Now, the point that Amalric makes here and throughout is this, that nothing happens purposelessly, so that 
the one thing the ex-prisoners or the prisoners cannot accept is that it is all meaningless. It's a nightmare. It is a horror. Most of them do not live to get out. But what they cannot accept is that nothing has any meaning. That is a worse fate than life in the gulag. And the same, he says, is true for those on the outside who suffer a great deal also, more than we who live in a relatively free country can understand. For them, too, the past 60 years or whatever their lifespan under the Soviet Union is not simply wasted time. In their own way, whether they are a Christian or not, they are compelled to believe that it all has a meaning. So in their own way, they are requiring that there be some kind of predestination. The ultimate horror is that events which occur to us are meaningless. But Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now on to something else. The last two times I have dealt, dwelt somewhat and dealt with the farm situation in this country. There is a new development and a very interesting one. In many parts of the Midwest, there have been auctions by banks on farm machinery and on farm properties. But the interesting thing is that the farmers have banded together to eliminate the uh, auction's validity. And they have done it by developing a simple device. For example, on August 25th, Minnesota farmers did something they had not done since the 30s. They stopped a farm auction. How did they stop it without being lawless? Very, very simply. In these farm auctions, what the farmers do is to get together beforehand and make an agreement that no one will bid more than a slight amount on the machinery or on the farm. They will offer pennies and nickels and maybe a dollar or two so that the entire proceedings will net the bank maybe 14 or 15 dollars. And then they hand everything over to the man. Well, in the Minnesota case on August the 25th, this having happened several times before, the auctioneer caught on when he saw that only men who carried a red bandana on their person were bidding, and were bidding pennies or nickels and dimes. And so he stopped the proceedings. But... This kind of thing will be more common in the days ahead so that 
we do see a resistance growing on the part of peoples to the increasing collapse of the farm community. Now on to something that two or three of you asked me to discuss. I don't remember who all did, but uh, because I don't have the letters with me at the moment, but I do recall that Bill and Betty Fellerson did. It was to comment on the situation in Lebanon with regard to the Lebanese and the uh, Israelis. To me, this is a most interesting situation. I don't pretend to know more than a little bit about it, but I'll pass on to you my general impression. Now, I think it is clear from previous tapes that I am no admirer of Menachem Begin. He is an ex-terrorist, and it is interesting that he is now getting the blame for terroristic activities. His chickens are coming home to roost. Uh, his uh, minister of defense, Sharon, has also had terroristic activities. This is why both of them are very unpopular with a large number of Israelis, a very substantial minority. All the same, uh, it is too bad that the present situation is causing so much trouble for Israel. The simple fact is that the Soviet Union has made Lebanon into a beachhead. It has destroyed what was the most peaceful country in the Mideast. What was, in terms of banking, the Switzerland of the Mideast. It was building up there a tremendous arsenal whereby using the PLO and no doubt some of its own military men, it planned to overthrow the Arab states. You may recall that the Arab countries were unwilling to accept, by and large, the PLO, and with good reason. They are also terrorists, and they are Marxist revolutionaries. Now, by going there, the Israelis may well have headed off World War III in that they seized the entire arsenal, an arsenal sufficient to wage a third world war or get it well underway in the Middle East. In the process, they also demonstrated the superiority of American weapons and some of their own. Uh, by the way, Pravda has since been defending the, uh, the value of its weapons because it received such a black eye, the Soviet Union did, uh, because of the confrontation between its weapons and American weapons in Lebanon. Now, we see something of the direction of the press and its bias. The Third World War may well have been prevented, but we've heard nothing about this. Next to nothing about the cache of arms. 
next to nothing about the evidences discovered of a planning for a major takeover of Arab countries. No, the Soviet Union cannot at any point be discredited. Instead, there has been almost a unanimous chorus of hostility against Israel. On top of that, we've had one side of the massacre. The massacre was wrong. It was evil, no question about it. But what we have to realize is that many of the soldiers who went into the camps came from three Christian villages that had been rubbed out by the PLO with brutal and savage massacres. They were also angry because the president-elect, Bashir Gamal, one of their fellow Christians, had been massacred by these same peoples. So there was a very savage, let us say clearly, an evil reaction. But we cannot forget that the massacre there in the PLO camp was preceded by other massacres against the very same people who were involved in that massacre, against their families. And some who went into the camp had actually been tortured by the PLO earlier. So there's a great deal of hostility, a great deal of hatred and tension and bitterness in the Middle East. And if we're going to tell the story, let's tell all of it. Certainly the massacre was wrong. But if the press is going to condemn it, they have a duty to condemn the massacres in the three Christian villages which preceded it, conducted by the PLO. The hostilities are so intense there that it does create some very sad situations. For example, in Israel, in Jerusalem itself, there is a young Palestinian a Palestinian Arab named Yasser Jabrin Lachmuz. He read the Bible. Or, let us say, he read the Bible known to the Jews, the Old Testament. And he decided that the Jews were the chosen people of God and that Israel rightly belonged to them. The land belonged to the Jews. And so he tried to become a Jew. But that young man in his early twenties is now rejected by the Arab community and viewed with suspicion and rejected by the Jewish community which will neither talk to him nor grant him citizenship. So he lives a very lonely life with now, for two years, nobody on either side wanting to have anything to do with him. Now, that's the reality of the situation there. The hostilities, the tensions, the hatreds have been built up to such an extent that for such a young man, there is no possibility of any kind of bridge between the two. I think 
one very telling cartoon which appeared on Wednesday, September 29 in the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner by Bill Shore really tells it all. Bill Shore is usually an ugly and rather vicious person in his uh, caricatures. But in this time, he has two panels. One is a large crowd carrying a placard saying, Begin must go. And it's titled, Jews protesting Israeli involvement in the Beirut massacre. And indeed, hundreds of thousands of Jews protested against the Begin administration. The next panel is titled, Arabs Protesting 72 Olympic Massacres, the Malat School Massacre, the Jerusalem Bus Bombing, etc. And it is a blank. No Arabs have protested any of these massacres. So, while I think we have to say that massacres on either side are wrong, Shore's cartoon still points up a fact. No protest against any massacre by the Arabs. Quite a bit of protest on the Jewish side against an indirect responsibility in the massacre. Let me add that some of the Maronites in Lebanon have said whether or not the Jews had let them in, they were going to go in because they were going to avenge their families. Well, now on to another subject. As Christians, we have to believe that Paul is absolutely right when he says in Romans 8.28, For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. This is an article of faith for those who believe the Bible is the word of God. It means we believe that God created all things, ordained all things, and is able to make the worst thing work together for good. Now, what Paul does not say is that all things are good, but that God makes all things work together for good. You see, unless you have a biblical faith, you have the alternative of saying, as the Enlightenment did, whatever is, is right, after Alexander Pope. Everything that is, is good. This was the thesis of Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce refused to believe that any act could be wrong. Any sexual act, any uh, use of drugs, no act could be wrong. Everything that is, is normative. This, of course, was the viewpoint of the Kinsey reports. Whatever happens in nature has to be natural, normative, and therefore good. And therefore, the Kinsey reports justified homosexuality, 
child molestation, and much, much more. It's a logical position if you're a naturalist. You either have to say that everything as it is is good, everything that happens is good, or else you have to say everything is meaningless or everything is evil. Once you take the world as it is, with nothing beyond it, and no standard to judge it, you destroy, really, the distinction between good and evil. Everything becomes meaningless, or else you say everything is good, or everything is evil. Well, this is the dilemma of people today. But for us, all things work together for good, because we believe that God makes them work together for good. As a result, as we view history, we have to say that everything has a purpose. The heresies that have arisen in the history of the church have been important in that they have redirected the attention of men to weak points in their presentation of the faith. And therefore, the heresies, while they have badly shaken the church for a while, have allowed the church to come through them strengthened and with its foundations stronger and more firmly planted on God, on Christ, on His Word. The same is true in our lives. The same, therefore, is true of movements today. Now, past few days I heard at a conference some very grim accounts of the status of the economy and of the situation in Mexico. The peso has dropped from a four-cent value to a one-cent value, which means that every poor man in Mexico has four times as much reason to come into the United States, and they are pouring in. With the banks nationalized and the economy controlled and the peso so dramatically weak, they want to live, and they're pouring into the United States. It is virtually impossible to keep these illegal aliens out. We have an open frontier between the United States and Mexico. And as a result, they do get in readily and easily. What are we going to say about this? Well, God has a purpose in it. And somehow, we have to, as Christians, believe that each of these crises, God is somehow going to make to work together for good. And therefore, we have to work together for God in these events to bring good out of these things. All of which takes me to a very interesting subject. Women's liberation, feminism. It has been a very powerful movement in the past two decades. It is far from spent in its force to date. Now the feminist movement has been 
associated with very real evils like lesbianism and has refused to separate itself from things like that and abortion. On the other hand, it has called attention to certain very grim problems. I'm going to point out how wrong they have been in their analyses. But all the same, the women's liberation movement has called very much needed attention to two things. One, rape, the second, child molestation. Our attitude towards rape has been fearful and is far from changed yet. Here and there, the courts are beginning to change. But by and large, a rape victim is raped again, so to speak, by the police and by the courts. You can ask a rape victim if she has ever had any illicit sex prior to the rape. You cannot bring out into the court record the fact that the rapist may have committed 20 rapes prior to this one. As a result, it is the rape victim who is on trial. Everything done to discredit her, to try to prove that she is an immoral woman, and the attitude is downright vicious. In one case not too long ago in New York, A man was freed, a professional criminal, a vicious hoodlum, even though it was obvious he was guilty simply because in the course of the cross-examination, the DA had called him a liar. And for that reason his conviction was thrown out. Now, we have actually had cases where, in one case, a mother of 46 was savagely raped and left permanently crippled, crippled for life. And yet the DA had the nerve to say and got away with it that she should have been grateful at her age for such an attention. Now that kind of thing is permissible in our courts. But don't you dare call attention to what the rapist or murderer, whatever the criminal may be, has done in the past or the convictions he has had. The victim has no protection, least of all the rape victim. The Women's Liberation Movement has done remarkably good work in calling attention to these evils and fighting them in a few places, all too few, the laws have been changed on this particular subject. Now, 
to criticize what they have done. The sad fact is that the women's lib people in their books, and I have read a number of them, as they deal with the subject of rape and child molestation, will only have occasionally, not all the books, something about the playboy and penthouse mentalities and what pornography has done. And some of these writers will say pornography is bad, but we cannot see it as a cause, but just as a concomitant uh, consequence of a general pervasive attitude. What do they blame? Why, basically, it's biblical faith, the Old Testament, a patriarchal society. And they are downright savage in their hostility to such a faith. They believe it is the patriarchal mentality that makes men rape women. Well then, why was not rape commonplace when such a biblical faith was commonplace and prevailed? Why is it that it is precisely as a sexual revolution has developed and grown and prospered that rape, incest, and child molestation has prospered, has increased, and it is skyrocketing as perhaps no other kind of criminal offense is. Moreover, Although the estimates vary, some are ready to say as much as 80 and 90 percent of all rape goes unreported to the police. I'm inclined to believe that. I travel a great deal back and forth across the country, and it's become horrifying to me to encounter people who because I am a pastor, will talk to me about what's happened in their family. These will be people from lower class, middle class, upper class homes. Sometimes when I go to a trial, someone will ask me to step out into the hallway when, after I'm testifying to tell me what's happened in their family. And the sad fact is that a lot of them no longer trust the police or the courts. They have heard what has happened, and so they do nothing. But the effect of it on them is shattering. It is shattering on the woman. It leaves her... frightened and afraid in the world, a very dangerous one for her. It leaves the man shattered because he sees himself as the protector. And his wife or his daughter has been raped. And it is shattering for him. And it is shattering as they realize if they've gone to the police. What a mockery the courts are.
I said most of them do not go anymore. And I know that. What it means is that you have a large number of people out there who believe that the civil forces are no longer capable of administering justice. And that leaves you with a major crisis in our civilization. When eight or nine out of ten people don't even bother to look for justice because they do not believe the state can give it, you are approaching the fall of Rome when people lost confidence in the ability of Rome to administer justice. When instead, because of the tax situation, they came to believe that the state was the oppressor. Ronald Reagan has seen to it that the IRS has gotten quite a few thousand new auditors to go after everybody who cheats on their taxes or whom the IRS thinks has cheated or has evaded paying his taxes. But we're not seeing any like effort to crack down on crime. So... The great crime for the modern state is not to pay your taxes, which means that most of us who are the working people, the tax-paying people of this country, we have come the target. We are the object of the hostile activities of civil government. And, of course, we must say that this is a shattering thing. I can recall when 20 years ago, cartoons in late March and early April very regularly had a great deal of humor about the IRS. That's become rare now. You rarely see a comic strip or a cartoon making fun of the IRS as though it were a lighthearted thing. It's too ugly a matter. Hagar the Horrible by Dick Brown occasionally shows tax collectors, but only as evil people. A year or two years ago, the American Legion magazine had some cartoons about the income tax, but it did not set well with people. It's not a laughing matter anymore, because people no longer have the same attitude towards the state. I referred to a particular case with regard to a woman who had been raped, and I want to correct it and make it more accurate, and this quote is from Nancy Gager and Kathleen Schur, S-C-H-U-R-R, Sexual Assault. Confronting Rape in America, published by Grosset and Dunlap in 1976. And I quote, Many lawyers, female as well as male, seem totally incapable of sympathizing with rape victims, let alone empathizing with them. The prevailing attitude is that rape is just another case. It isn't really so bad, or that older women especially want it. This attitude was tragically summed up recently by a Virginia court-appointed defender, Blair D. Howard, 
Howard acted on behalf of a criminal who pleaded guilty to the brutal rape of a 47-year-old mother of four, a woman happily married for 26 years, who has suffered permanent damage as a result of the attack, said Fairfax County lawyer Howard after the conviction of his client. Quote, It's not the kind of aggravated case of a young girl who is going to be permanently scarred. Here was a 47-year-old woman with four children who, to put it in a crude way, she might be glad to have it happen, unquote. That's on page 171. Now, that's the kind of thing I was referring to. Now, I'd like to refer to something that appeared in the Roanoke, Virginia Times and World News on the editorial page. And just to read a part of it uh, about some things that have transpired in England. This is from the uh, June 14, 1982 issue, page A4. In the South London borough of Wandsworth, the citizens broke tradition three years ago and voted for a Tory majority on their borough council. The council to look, took a look at its sanitation system. The dustmen, as our quaint cousins call them, have jobs that are carefully protected against anything that might lead to efficiency and lower costs, like work-study teams, the employment of blacks, and such like dangerous innovations, the Economist of London reports. The council decided that it could save the people money by farming out the street cleaning to a private contractor. Later, it planned to put garbage collector in the hands of a private contractor, too. The garbage men struck half-heartedly. They figured the citizens would soon turn out the Tories and re-elect a labor council. The laborites would promptly put the dustmen back on the public payroll, and they could resume their securely inefficient ways. That's not what happened. The Tories held on to a majority. The dustmen intensified their strike. Five of the private contractor's vehicles were mysteriously damaged by fires. Criminal charges were brought against four dustmen. The people had spoken in favor of private enterprise. The public employee union struck against the people. Meanwhile, the health care system in England was making no great a case for socialized medicine. The National Union of Public Employees, NUPE, has been stirring up militancy among hospital ancillary workers. The Economist reports that hospital staffers have refused to sterilize surgical instruments or dispose of extracted appendices. Linen went unwashed and kitchens were idle. In a London hospital, a surgeon had to negotiate with a shop steward over which of his patients qualified for emergency treatment. It's bad enough to have garbage collectors who won't do the job, who violently oppose the substitution of someone who will. But what could be more disastrous than a nationalized health care system with a national union urging employees on to militancy? Well, now to another thing. The... 
October 1982 Reader's Digest has an excellent book section entitled The KGB's Magical War for Peace. It's about the nuclear freeze movement and the Soviet sponsorship and um, creation of it. I think it's important for us to read, and if you have any college-age children in your family, put this in their hands. I know that the sons and daughters of a number of very conservative men, in fact, conservative leaders, have been infected by this kind of thinking. I've seen it, and I've had it reported to me, and their families don't always know it. They have been so saturated with the anti-nuclear movement on college and university campuses that they have come to accommodate themselves to it and have gone halfway to accepting many of the premises thereof. Then I'd like to read a letter by Ron Paul to an editor, and I quote, The imminent or present bankruptcies of Mexico, Argentina, Bolivia, and Poland ought to direct our attention to the Monetary Control Act once again. That act was passed in 1980. By the end of August, the Federal Reserve had purchased debts of West Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Canada, France, and England, and used those debts as collateral for printing and issuing on 70 different occasions about $2 billion worth of Federal Reserve notes from four different reserve banks. There is no legal impediment that would prevent the Federal Reserve from buying the debts of Mexico, Argentina, Bolivia, or Poland and using them for the same purpose. With the nationalization of the banks in Mexico, virtually all Mexican debt becomes eligible for Fed purchase. For the Monetary Control Act empowers the Fed to buy the debts issued or guaranteed by foreign governments or their agents. Mexico's external debt is between 80 and 85 billion, 27 billion of which comes due this year. Mexico has already announced its inability to pay, and Argentina has requested a standby IMF loan. The Federal Reserve, which prides itself on its lender or last resort position, will be bailing out the world. The total communist and third world external debt is now about $850 billion. In the next few weeks, the Monetary Control Act will become more and more important. Sincerely, Ron Paul, Member of Congress. The reference by Paul is to... Uh, the first title of Public Law 96-221, which became law on March 31, 1980. I was told at a dinner table a few days ago by an expert on Mexico that Mexico is expecting, and there is every reason to believe, rightly so, that the Federal Reserve will take over their debts. This will mean dramatic 
inflation for us. So we have nothing but trouble ahead. Incidentally, there are about 26 countries, I believe, who are currently facing a default. And the net result of it will be that if we take over all of these, we are in trouble, very big trouble. The One of the uh, results will be that the Treaty of the Sea will again be a prime consideration for approval because the Treaty of the Sea is to serve the same purpose as the giving away of the Panama Canal. Panama was in a situation of default. The Panama Canal was given to Panama to enable Panama with the receipts from the canal to pay off our New York banks, which invested in Panama. So the nation suffered to help the New York banks. Well, if the Treaty of the Sea is passed, and we will see, I think, pressure to pass it again, it will put all our offshore wealth the fisheries, the offshore minerals, the oil rights, into the hands of the UN and the third world countries in the Soviet Union. I have a question to ask here. Our environmentalists have been very eloquent about protesting if Union Oil puts up an oil well offshore at Santa Barbara, for example. Where have they been? with regard to the Treaty of the Sea. Will they ever protest if the Soviet Union and the Third World countries dot the coast with thousands of derricks and have fishing boats taking up everything so that you can do nothing offshore without their permission? Now, with the control of this off wealth, these third world countries will then be enabled to pay off their debts to our banks. So the Panama situation is going to be reenacted unless the American people stop it. Congressman Fields of Texas by his efforts, blocked the ratification by the United States of the Treaty of the Sea. It has not been killed. It has only been temporarily blocked. With the default of these nations, you're going to see again a renewed pressure with regard to the Treaty of the Sea. I'd like to see the environmentalists in on it, but I'm not holding my breath. I don't see them protesting anything that socialism does, only what the free market does. Well, a few more items uh, hurriedly. Uh, the Pittsburgh ACLU chapter sought an injunction last month to prevent 
a full-time religious channel on cable TV. So much for freedom of speech on the part of the uh, liberals. The ACLU brief was filed on behalf of a minister of a Unitarian church uh, and a, a member of the American Atheists and a church identified with homosexuals. So we're going to see more of that sort of thing, I'm quite sure. Then uh, we're seeing a stepped-up hostility to religious liberty in a number of the states. For example, in one situation not too long ago, an 82-year-old Orthodox Hasidic rabbi was threatened with criminal penalties for conducting religious service in an outbuilding adjacent to his home in a residential district. The court, however, in this case, ruled against the rabbi. This was a case in Miami Beach. However, in New Jersey, in Somerset County, a minister who moved his church meeting place from an empty school to his home after the rent was raised was cited for violating the single-family zoning law. And in this case, he lost. The number of uh, such rulings are increasing. As a matter of fact, these rulings began a number of years ago and one of their purposes in the 60s was to try to kill off Negro churches that were meeting in homes. Because so many churches in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, black churches, were being taken over by modernists in their own circles, many of the faithful moved out of the church to start their own groups in homes and immediately moves were made against this, often uh, at the request of uh, councils, local councils of churches. Religious liberty is something these people believe in for themselves and not for others. So we do have a growing problem in that home churches are being severely persecuted in many areas. We're also seeing that home teaching of children is again the target of a renewed assault. And in some states, some very strong efforts are underway to eliminate every such uh, institution or home teaching situation. More could be said about this, but I think what I've touched on is enough because our time is running out. We are in a battle, but the best part of the battle is that it's forcing a lot of people to wake up. Remember, earlier I said that everything happens from the hand of God and as an opportunity to make things work together for good. 
so that when we're confronted with these things, its purpose is to rouse us out of our sleep, out of our indifference, and to make us more clear-cut fighters for the kingdom of God. During the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a lot of churchmen were enamored with the idea of dialogue. They were endlessly in dialogue with every foul ball group they could locate. They wanted dialogues with the Marxists. They wanted dialogues with prisoners. They wanted dialogues with homosexuals, dialogues with women libbers, dialogues with any group that came along, as though the dialogue constituted a way of dealing with reality. And... Uh, the most fashionable thing came to be, and some of the uh, apers in the church community are still continuing it. For a while, uh, magazines and journals were also given over totally to a dialogue on this and a dialogue on that. Anything but action. Anything but a confrontation. Anything but a clear-cut, cold analysis of whatever was at hand, and then doing something about it. Well, men are being shaken out of that. The day of dialogue is ended. The day of paper Christianity is ended. It's time for action. And we can be grateful to God for that. The humanists are to be thanked for waking up the sleeping church. Well, it's been good to be with you again, and I have enjoyed hearing from some of you, and when I travel, it's a delight to meet some of you or to see some of you again and to discuss some of these subjects further. Thank you for listening in again. Goodbye, and God bless you.